0: Hi, this is Displaced. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy.
1: And I am Grant Gordon. And this is a podcast that's a partnership between the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work, and Vox Media.
0: If you're new to the show, this is the podcast where we talk about the causes and consequences of wars and disasters. We get into why humanitarian crises happen and what the most innovative solutions are that can try and address them.
1: Today on the show, we've got Owen Barter, who is the vice president and director for Europe at the Centre for Global Development. Owen's worked in the UK government for over 20 years, from 1988 to 2010. He worked in 10 Downing Street as private secretary for economic affairs to the prime minister and spent years at Treasury as well as DFID. He's got extensive experience. In this episode, we have a wide-ranging conversation that is not what you're going to expect Owen has some pretty radical and controversial opinions about humanitarian response and the humanitarian enterprise, and we dive straight into those. Owen thinks that humanitarians have stepped beyond their boundaries and that we should actually reduce the humanitarian caseload. He thinks that refugee camps are a blight on civilization and one of the biggest mistakes that we're making right now at all. He's got a set of ideas that seem radical, but taking a step back are a part of broader debates on humanitarian reform that it's useful to set the table for before we get into it.
0: One aspect of humanitarian programming that really epitomizes the idea of creating separate parallel systems is the creation of refugee camps. And Owen's got some pretty controversial views there. He thinks that we should essentially abolish refugee camps. Um, And just to put this into context... In many situations when refugees flee over the border, they're not allowed to live and move within towns and cities. Instead, they're forced to live within these formal camps run by the UN or NGOs or host governments. And these can sometimes get very large. For example, the Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya has nearly a quarter of a million refugees as of April 2017. And while they're often founded as temporary things, you see people who've grown up and only seen the insides of a, a refugee camp. Owen takes a very extreme view on this and, and actually makes a comparison with concentration camps, which I don't think is quite appropriate. But the underlying point that this is something that in future we might look back on and feel appalled by is something that resonated with me and I think is widely chaired.
1: I think that anybody who is a bit close to the space knows that these are debates in which oftentimes what people do is take the middle ground, the kind of easiest route out that makes everybody a little bit happy as the way to think about a future policy architecture or framework. And what Owen does is basically say, no, like that's wrong. What we actually need to do is take one radical version of that. And that's what he talks about today, which is really interesting.
0: Yeah, so I'm not sure that I agree with Owen, but I just really welcome the provocation of somebody prepared to stick their neck out and say, here's a radical solution. Whereas usually, as you say you get these rather boring uh, reports that chart the middle middle ground.
1: All right. So without further ado, here's Owen. We hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did.
0: Owen Bader, welcome to Displaced. It's great to have you on the program.
2: Thanks very much. Good to be here
0: one of the things we well, we're going to use this podcast to talk about what is wrong with the humanitarian system and how we can reform it in quite radical ways and where i'd like to start is the question of refugee camps now when people think about refugees they probably have in their mind people living in these camps in the middle of nowhere and actually the majority of people now don't live in camps they actually live in uh, outside of these camps maybe in towns and cities but there's still many many millions of people who are displaced internally or externally who live uh, in these places. And you think that we should be thinking about radical solutions to refugee camps and potentially how to eradicate them. Can you just say a little bit more about why, why do you feel that way? And uh, what's the basic idea at the heart of your thinking on this?
2: So I think when people look back on our uh, our time, they will wonder why we tolerated refugee camps for so long. They will look back, as we do, on concentration camps uh, as an aberration in, uh, in humanity's history. It's fantastic news that um, we're now under half the refugee population living in refugee camps. Most people, as you say, are now not doing that, but it's still around 40% of refugees. And people um, don't just go to a refugee camp for a few weeks while they're finding uh, a permanent place uh, to live. Uh, or until they can return home. They are uh, in there for years, sometimes decades. People are born in refugee camps and have no prospect ever of leaving them, places like Dadaab in Kenya. Um, And um, I don't think it's a simple proposition to say we're just going to close them because there are all kinds of reasons why we have refugee camps. But having a shared international commitment to shut them would force us to address the reasons why people end up in refugee camps. So they would force us to think about how we find other durable solutions for displaced people. And 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 having that shared political commitment that we're going to shut refugee camps uh, would force us then to think about what we need to put in place uh, so that nobody has to live in a refugee camp.
0: It may sound obvious, but what is it about living in a refugee camp versus living in a town or city? What is what is wrong with a camp?
2: So I, a friend of mine uh, was back recently from a, a refugee camp who met somebody, um, uh, a young man who had been born in that refugee camp, um, now uh, in their late teens, and in a question and answer session on his visit, put up his hand and said, I would like one day to eat something other than the um, maize and oil and salt that I'm given by the World Food Programme in this camp. You know, I know about all these other fabulous foods, but, but I just have to eat what I'm given in this camp. You have um, no markets, you have no opportunities to work, you have uh, no opportunity to, to move around the country in which you live. Um, you're essentially imprisoned in a camp. You know, in, in many cases, people born in captivity, living in captivity, but even people who, who've uh, been displaced and end up in a refugee camp as adults uh, with very little prospect ever of leaving. It's not acceptable that, that's the few, that we don't do a good enough job of finding alternatives for those people.
1: So I think that um this framing is really useful and, and um really challenging. I often ask myself the question in 100 or 200 or 300 years from now how will they judge us as barbarians as we have judged previous uh, generations because we will be judged. And I, and I find it a useful way to think outside and reframe questions. And I would take contention with the fact that you're kind of comparing refugee camps to concentration camps but putting that aside i think the deeper insight about what is actually potentially wrong what should we question in a fundamental way in the way that humanitarian aid is distributed because i think if you're on the outside there's the assumption that you're there saving lives right we're setting we're setting up camps we're providing food and this flips that and starts to ask a different question which i think is really useful but then you also have to ask like how did we get here right and I think it's one of the ways that you start to unpack how to break it down by historically contextualizing like that. And so I want to go through some of these reasons um, and and chat through them because I I think it's useful. So the first that you talk about is the fact that people are in camps, they're not allowed out. And I think that tends to be driven by two facts, largely. One is when refugees come into a country, there's a concern that they pose a security risk, right? that they are you know not necessarily going to you know have kind of like uh, be kind of you know kill parts of the populations, but that they may be terrorists. This is particularly relevant now I think in first stop countries around the Syria region where you have large population flows out and you don't know who's coming over the borders and so you need to keep people in. The second is a serious concern around, Who are you letting in to become a part of your society? And so that's, I think, the first point of contention that I think you have
2: to deal with. I think that's exactly right. And most refugees are in developing countries. And those are countries that don't have uh, almost by definition sufficient resources to provide for their own population, their own citizens, uh, the level of public services and uh, economic uh, opportunities that they would like. And the world community is asking them to uh, accommodate and support a, 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 another group of people, in some cases, very large numbers and proportionately very large numbers. And those countries are concerned about, um, as you say, the security issues. They're concerned about the political effects. If, if these people uh, have opportunities, pathways to citizenship, what does that mean for the balance in that country? Um, of uh, of political priorities um, and for the incumbent uh, political majorities, and people are concerned about these things. But so, I mean, then you have to start to unpack um, uh, how how we address those. So on the security, I and mean, that works both ways, right? It's it's pretty clear that um, camps can also be breeding grounds. Uh, they can be places where groups get together and um, where um, political extremism can develop. And it's not altogether surprising that that happens. Famous example, I think historically, if you were to ask a humanitarian, was uh, in the Eastern Democratic
1: Republic of Congo after the Rwandan genocide, about a million Hutus crossed the border into the Eastern DRC, were put in camps. And those became breeding grounds for what then became increased resentment. And the rebel groups that uh, you saw kind of foment in the Eastern Congo and, and largely destabilize that region and cause then a, a war that's, you know, generated millions of deaths.
2: Exactly right. Uh, and there are plenty of examples uh, where uh, refugees have um, been given better opportunities and and dispersed and uh, where you don't have that kind of resentment building up. Now, I absolutely don't want to give the impression that I think that uh, most or many or very or, you know, more than a, Tiny minority of people in refugee camps would would or should be considered dangerous, but I think it's not it's not obviously the case that keeping people in camps is a, is a good way to reduce danger. Um, and I think it's absolutely right that we should be concerned about um, the economy of the country that is hosting refugees. But it's interesting that uh, enabling refugees to participate in the economy. Um, preferably by um, giving them opportunities to work, uh, giving people cash to the extent that we provide international support, is good for the economy and not bad for the economy. And, and they, um, they can contribute. It's actually quite harmful for an economy to have uh, the international system bringing uh, truckloads of food and blankets and, uh, and other goods and services in from outside uh, to provide for refugees in a refugee camp and much better for the economy and much less likely to breed resentment in the host community if those people are able to um, uh, exercise demand in the economy, to be buying food, to be um, uh, you know, uh, buying the things that they need um, rather than being given them externally, especially as in some cases the level of services that they are provided by the international community is um, a different package of services and sometimes a better package of services than the very poor surrounding community are getting and able to afford and that breeds resentment as well um so we need to we need to be thinking about i mean i'm absolutely not recommending that we just shut the refugee camps tomorrow and hope that it will all be all right, I'm suggesting that that concentrates our minds on what is the right package of reforms of the humanitarian system that would make these camps unnecessary because we have a better alternative. But underpinning what you're
0: saying is that the technocratic challenges of integrating refugees are actually quite easy to solve, in that if you allow people to integrate into a society, you give them cash and access to services, they can become contributors to a local economy. But the biggest challenge is a political one, particularly that desire from countries that are hosting refugees to make themselves um, difficult to settle in because they want to discourage more people coming to their country. Um, and that I don't really see how um, you, you meet that need that those countries feel they have to deter refugees without either making borders uh, very difficult to get through, or once people get through a border, making them essentially second-class citizens, which is what um, yeah, people are.
2: And yet the country that I believe hosts the most refugees today, which is Uganda, is doing exactly this. It As a proportion ha- of its population. As a proportion of its population. It it has uh, very large numbers of refugees, and it has decided to not to have refugee camps, but to allow them to uh, live and indeed work and move around the country at will. Um, and so far, um, it's regarded as a tremendous success uh, because refugees uh, contribute to uh, the economy and the society. And um, so far, that's working. Now, uh, you're right that there are um, political reasons and we see this in our own country this is not a point about developing countries we, you know we see, we see it we, we see not, it reaction to tiny, is, num, tiny numbers right, of tiny people. numbers who we can easily uh, afford to provide for um, and yet we we see significant opposition to that um, and but one of the things that's striking is that we we spend an enormous amount of resource on supporting refugees in refugee camps And one interesting question is whether if we used that resource to reduce the friction of absorbing refugees into our societies in other ways, whether we could um, reduce the political opposition to having refugees um, uh, with other solutions other than being in a refugee camp. Because these refugee camps are not cheap, and it's not a particularly effective way of providing for them. So if we provided for them in more effective ways – we could both make the outcomes for them better, and we could my hypothesis is make it less um politically challenging, but we also ought to be making at the political point that it is not okay for the world community to be making people live in refugee camps so this actually gets an
1: important point in when how to think about refugee camps as uh, in terms of kind of costs and alternative options refugee camps all in all are like ex- are extremely expensive spaces um, to maintain. And I think that's probably not something that uh, is people's first thought when they think about humanitarian aid going into refugee camps, right? So you set up a refugee camp and I have worked in many refugee camps. I used to be a part of work for the UN refugee agency. Like you kind of see it and you're essentially building a town from start to finish, which means you are providing shelter you're setting up water and sanitation systems you're oftentimes you know supporting electrification grids you're providing all the type of infrastructure that you would need for hundreds of thousands of people, often if not tens of thousands um, oftentimes in areas where there's nothing there. so you can go to many refugee camps around the world and like they're in the middle of nowhere and what that then means is you're building your water sanitation out to be able to be the to be able to be trucked out or to like hook into other grids. And all of a sudden you start to kind of quantify these costs
0: and they're massive. But aren't, aren't they cheaper? So this they're, is the counter-argument. I mean, exactly. compare that to settling somebody in a town or city where the cost of accommodation uh, must be huge. And it will also have knock-on consequences for local population where rents go up. So isn't it often cheaper in aggregate to actually put people in uh, remote locations well, so,
1: and let me add on to that because i think there's a flip side which is if you said there's hundred thousand people coming over your border tomorrow which has happened uh the rohingya, the rohingya into into Absolutely. bangladesh right Absolutely. you said oh my god we don't have the you know money or cash to support these people what are we going to do what well, you'd immediately think is was like all right how can we centralize our resources um provide services at the lowest cost and I think, you know, one first answer is like, all right, well, like, centralize it all. Put it all in one space. Like, that. that's how you'll get these returns that you're talking about.
2: And I think if we were just considering a short term, you know, we need somewhere for these people for the next three weeks uh, while, you know, we deal with the flooding or the earthquake or, you know, the political violence that has led them to flee. I think that would be a reasonable response. But we know that people are displaced. Uh, on average, for much longer than that, for more than 10 years. Um, the numbers are hard to interpret, but you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 years. And it doesn't make sense to put people in a closed, uh, to build a city, a closed city, unconnected to uh, the economy and society, for people to live in for decades. Because that is a very expensive proposition. If you imagine building a city in your own country, that was sealed off from the rest of the country that hadn't had no economic connections that that would uh, and you had to support everybody in it remotely that would be much more expensive than if you allowed that group of people to engage with the wider society and wider economy so in the in the long run this cannot be cheaper but
0: when we think about why this happens we've talked so far about the countries that host refugees uh, being reluctant to integrate people because of security concerns or concerns that they're creating a pull factor but there's also another vested interest we should talk about that perpetuates the refugee system, as we know, which are the various agencies that are all geared up to deliver camp-based services. And to what extent do you think those agencies and the way they get their funding reinforce the status quo?
2: So I think there's a, this is a broader question than whether or not we should be uh, aiming to close the refugee camps is the broader question of how we reform the humanitarian system. And as you rightly say... Um, The humanitarian system is dominated by a small number of UN agencies that do, let's be absolutely clear, amazing work in incredibly difficult circumstances. Their staff are heroes, they work in unbelievably, unimaginably difficult conditions, they make uh, a small amount of resource go a very long way, and I'm in awe of the people who work in this system. But there is something flawed about the system and knew those compliments
0: these were, were too generous a, for you not to have a
2: big but. There's a the but. <laughs> there is a big but coming. <laughs> and part of the problem here is that these UN agencies are straddling two different functions. One is a normative function of setting standards and policy and expectations for the international community about the thing for which they're responsible. So in the case of the World Food Programme, it's about food and hunger, what constitutes famine, what what does good food policy look like. And part of what they're doing is functioning as a large-scale logistics delivery organisation. You think of the photographs that we've all seen of of trucks snaking over a mountain pass carrying sacks of food with the UN World Food Programme symbol on it. And the World Food Programme runs a very big logistics uh, uh, operation to get food to people. And the logistics services, the food delivery service that it provides, which is funded mainly by international donors, a small handful of donors actually, is um, taxed in effect to pay for the normative functions, that they, they the overheads. Uh, for on food delivery is what pays for this absolutely critical international UN public good of food policy and and monitoring progress um, on famine and hunger and we're stuck in a world where in order to continue to do their internationally mandated work on setting standards they have to go on running a logistics business Um, to deliver food because that's the only way they can get paid. And they have a large number of people, employees, who literally drive trucks and and fill sacks of food and so on, who, for understandable reasons, want to continue to do that. And so you have an organization whose incentive is to assert in any given situation that what's needed is for somebody to bring in quite a large amount of food And the donors had better pay them to do that because this is what they do. And so we end up with the situation, and this is replicated across, I'm not picking out the World Food Programme, happens to be a large example of it, but uh, there are many others who are asked what's needed in a particular situation, what does the affected population need. That question isn't asked of an independent expert who will look at all the different needs that a population has uh, and work out how much money people should be given and what what else needs to be provided that money won't buy, we ask organisations whose job it is to deliver um, uh, food, for example, or shelter or water uh, or education, and they all um, make a, a bid. They all say, oh, what we need is this many kilograms of food, for example. And those bids are all added up and submitted as a UN appeal to the international community to finance and that appeal is made up of a lot of organisations with a strong interest in um, maximising the extent of the appeal, because they are the people who will deliver it, and whose organisational overheads are paid uh, by uh, by taxing the delivery of those uh, those goods and services. So you have, and the donors know that the donors then receive this appeal. And know that all these organizations have an incentive to, um, uh, to make the maximum possible claim about what's needed. And so they assume that it's probably exaggerated and they'll only pay a proportion of it. And so to get conc- concrete, right? So like you're thinking that a World Food Programme or any organization, and this isn't just for
1: food, this is all for aid, right. is in a place they're doing an assessment. So they're in South Sudan, for example. And what they're saying is, we think that there's 100,000 people. In need of food, and that that's going to cost twenty million dollars, right? And so, what happens then in this structure?
2: So, uh, playing out that example. So, in that in that example, the donors then uh, look at this uh, asserted need, and the NGOs and the media all you know amplify it and say that there's a you know there's going to be a famine unless this amount of uh, food is provided, and the donors um, then. Uh, pass around the hat and contribute usually about a half of, of any given appeal. And because the, um, the organization's bidding know that the donors are going to um, cut in half whatever they bid for, they tend to exaggerate it even more uh, because um, they are genuinely concerned to make sure that the community they're looking after gets enough resource, right? The last thing they want to happen is for people to die of hunger because they failed to make the case – uh, for bringing in the resources that are needed, right?
1: So why not ask for more?
2: So, so they may as well ask for more, and to the extent that they get that, they can then deliver those services, which is great, and they and that helps them fund the basic organisation. The central point is that this doesn't happen in any other public service. What we do is we have separate people whose job it is to uh, to identify the need and to commission, and other people whose job it is to deliver. Um, in the case of the humanitarian system, you have the same organizations that do the needs assessment, that do the delivery, do the monitoring and evaluation, and report back to the donors. So they are, they are responsible for the entire system, which in almost every other area of public life would be separated out into different functions holding each other to account. I mean, in, you know, in any public procurement system, a different person describes the need than delivers it.
0: So this is a trend that's happened in public service delivery over the last sort of 30 years, where you do have separate commissioners from providers. But one of the challenges that that creates are firstly some transaction costs, because you've got two agencies, and then you sometimes have a sort of third, which is an audit inspection function. Perhaps more significantly, the person who's doing that needs identification may not have the expertise to really be an intelligent uh, diagnoser of issues or commissioner of services, And when you're talking about these incredibly difficult environments, is it really sensible to be having even more fragmentation, which is what it seems like you're suggesting?
2: So we're sitting in in London on the 70th anniversary of the National Health Service. And one of the founding principles of the National Health Service was that you had a general practitioner whose job it was to navigate for you your way through the National Health Service. So they weren't the person who provided the specialist operations uh, that you might need. And they had... Not only did they not have a financial interest in you having an operation, they had a financial interest in keeping you healthy so you didn't need an operation uh, because they were paid, according to the number of people on their books, whether or not they got treatment elsewhere in the system. And the healthier you were, the fewer visits you made to them. So the you need expert uh, experts to help you navigate the system, but you don't want a system in which the person who's judging whether you need an operation is the person who's going to get paid to provide you with that operation, so you're absolutely right. There is there are I'm transactions. you suggesting there's costs. something
1: wrong with the American healthcare system. Uh,
2: far be it for me to judge <laughs> other people's healthcare systems, but as you know, we're very proud of the NHS, and we're very proud of this principle that um, uh, these services are all free at the point of use. But you have in your general practitioner someone whose job it is to um, help you navigate specialist services. But doesn't actually provide them to you, and no one regards that as an unnecessary transaction cost. That is that is desirable. So yes, it, um, th- that means that there are two actors in the decision. But actually, the long-term incentives are much more efficient than if the same actor is helping you navigate it, who is actually going to be rewarded. For providing you with the service that you think you need and particularly if they're also the person who's then going to judge whether it was done right or not at the end of the day, which is another feature of the humanitarian system.
0: But how big a problem is this? I mean you're saying that sure this creates an incentive for these agencies to exaggerate the scale of the problem because they know that they're not going to get um, all of their needs met and that they need to uh, gain these resources in order to pay for their basic services, but why does that really matter?
2: Well, it really matters because it stands in the way of innovation and change. So, for example, it's become outstandingly clear that um, a a very effective way of providing support to displaced people is to provide them with cash rather than to provide them with goods and services in kind. And, um, you know, it's possibly the most evaluated type of intervention uh, over the last 50 years, is cash transfers to um, in humanitarian situations. And it's, it's not always the case, but it's very often the case, that if you give people cash, they end up with the goods and services they need at a lower cost than if we deliver them to them uh, uh, in, in kind. But we have a whole set of UN organizations and other uh, international organizations who are set up to deliver stuff and the the result of that is although the evidence is now very compelling, we've been very very slow it's still you know um, uh, something like five or six percent of humanitarian aid is provided in cash, although there have been repeated commitments on on the part of the international community to change that and it is changing, but it's changing very slowly and it's changing in very cumbersome ways, so we end up with um uh, every UN organization wanting some of those cash payments to come through their system, so that they can charge the overheads and and justify their presence on the ground, uh, and you have um, people, for example, in Lebanon with payment cards with maybe twenty different types of cash payment on them. So that the, to reflect all these different, you have um, cash for legal services and cash for winterization and cash for food and all these partly earmarked, partly vouchers, all because the system is set up in a way that doesn't just say we're going to give you cash and let you decide how you spend that money uh, to meet your needs. So you have these institutional interests are uh, blocking change towards something that is more efficient and effective for the donors in terms of delivering help to people who need it, but also more empowering for the beneficiaries, the affected populations. And and one of the striking things about the humanitarian system is how little voice the affected populations have in it. And to the extent that they do have voice, it's all intermediated by these logistics-driven organizations who have particular interests in doing particular things. And that is a that is a very dang- – so you can see why it's short-term efficient to use these big agencies that exist. But the long-term effect of that is that you have a system that is not very efficient, not very accountable, doesn't change, doesn't innovate – doesn't have competition and contestability that brings new ideas and new ways of doing business into the organization because the institutional obstacles to that are too high so uh i want to take a step back and provide
1: a landscape um in terms of what is actually going on within the humanitarian system and and before i do that though i want to like underscore i think one of the things as somebody who's worked in the sector for a while which is you know Humanitarians, as you noted, are doing like incredibly important life-saving work, like very, very much so. And then once you're in the system, you actually see how these structures work, how the institutions are set, how the policies um, shape behavior, and it's really confounding. <laughs> and. I find it like hard to look away from. It's why I end up talking about the business of humanitarianism more than I often end up talking about the clients at the end of the day. Because when you see it, you realize that if you can actually fix the business of the humanitarian sector, you would be able to do much, so much more for clients. Um, and this is this is reflective of a broader trend in the humanitarian sector. So in. 2016, there was the first world humanitarian summit, um, which was many of the institutions you're talking about coming together and outlining a set of commitments that actually dovetail with a few of the things you said. So, 2016, 18 donor countries and 16 aid agencies committed to essentially 10 thematic areas. These included, you know, more transparency, uh, independent needs assessment, which is what you're talking about in that second piece. Uh, They didn't call for breaking down refugee camps, but they did call for increases in cash um, and a number of other pieces. And so there is this kind of sea change happening right now, but we're also right now at two years out from the World Humanitarian Summit and uh, there wasn't uh, a body charged with doing independent evaluations of uh, progress made towards the summit commitments and it's um, the Overseas Development Institute, a think tank based here in London. And they just came out with their... uh, two-year kind of assessment. And I think it's like, worth quoting because it actually gets at the core of it, which is, the agreement itself is collapsing under the weight of its own bureaucracy. Its 51 commitments, 10 work streams, and multi-layered governance structure are providing too unwieldy to manage. Its architecture is overstructured and its implementation under-governed, lacking the high-level political commitment and investment from signatories needed to encourage momentum, focus, and prioritization. And you get this sense that, the same thing that's happening to the reform agenda, the changes that you're calling for are being subsumed into the structure itself. But Owen, I've heard you talk about why you actually are optimistic for more reform happening here and us like making real change. Take, take us through that.
2: So uh, I think you're absolutely right to start with the fact that the people who work in this sector are all profoundly committed, profoundly hardworking, and none of these criticisms of the system are a criticism of them. And what you see is a lot of actors. There's actions, another but coming, isn't there? Well, that's what I can, tell, not, I can <laughs> tell. Exactly right. You, I see your not. style <laughs> of uh, delivery. No, but I absolutely don't yeah, want no, it's, anybody it's, it's, listening it's to this really really to think that, that I'm having a go at that, you know, that I think that the, the people in the system are in some sense venal or uh, corrupt or self serving. I absolutely don't think that's true. I think that, that what's happened is that we're stuck in an equilibrium that works to some extent for the donors, and it works to some extent for the organisations. And it's very hard for anybody individually to shift to a different equilibrium. So for the donors who have constraints on their administration, the the amount, you know, it's hard for them to do individual contracting, it's hard for them to manage a series of different relationships, they can just hand over a a lump of money to one of these UN organisations and um, that's their way of getting the job done. And for the organizations who have these large payrolls, these large staff doing these tasks, and they have a reluctance on the part of the international system to finance their normative needs, uh, the, the normative role that these organizations fulfill, It's it's a, it works for them because they can charge an overhead on their service delivery functions. and And the problem is that the um, uh, the world, the grand bargain that came out of the world humanitarian summit, and indeed two previous humanitarian reform efforts, are simply an assertion by that community that they they wish they were in a different equilibrium, right? But but wishing you were in a different equilibrium doesn't get you into a different equilibrium. And I thought you were going to give me your reason for optimism. <laughs> I am going to give you a reason for optimism. My reason for optimism is that it's actually a handful of donors who finance this system, and they can get together and change it. So if, for example, I mean, the, the handful of donors in question are the US, by far the world's largest humanitarian donor, uh, the UK, ECHO, which is the European Community Humanitarian Organization, Germany, Sweden, actually Turkey provides a huge amount of hu- humanitarian aid, in the, but, but mm-hmm. leave that aside for now. Um, uh, that group of donors could get together and say, we will not fund a humanitarian appeal unless it has an independent needs assessment. And that would change the equilibrium because what the UN system wants to do is... Sorry, so who would, th- who would do the independent needs assessment? Uh, they would need to commission somebody to do an independent needs assessment. They'd put it out. a new business idea, rather. They'd put it out, right. It, it, they'd put it out to tender, and it, but it wouldn't be one of the big UN agencies. It wouldn't be, let's pass the hat around the UN agencies and ask them to tell us how much uh, they think uh, they would like to be uh, given to provide services to this population. So they would all those UN agencies would make their case and provide their analysis. but the, uh, the assessment would be put together separately. Uh, and to take that exa- to take that example further, if they said that that's what we're prepared to fund, the system would adapt to it. What's needed is for the donors who hold the purse strings to insist upon it, and they are they can do that if they coordinate and individually they can't but a group of them can
0: so we're going to take a very quick break and we're going to be back in a sec with optimistic owen barder one of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth yet most of us don't do it properly quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers it was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple affordable and even enjoyable Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association and has thousands of verified five-star reviews. Grant, who's sitting next to me with very shiny teeth, is loving it, and it's his first electric toothbrush, and Quip is actually backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash displaced right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash displaced. If you're thinking about saving money this summer, why not start by paying less interest on your credit card balances? Refinance with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. It's an easy way to save hundreds to thousands of dollars and lower your interest rate. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.89% APR with AutoPay, lower than the average credit card interest rate of over 18% APR. You could get your funds as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate and no fees, so say goodbye to high interest credit cards this summer and start saving with Lightstream. Displaced listeners can save even more with an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com fox That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount, terms and conditions apply and offers a subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for more information.
1: And we're now back with Owen Barter. And I'm glad because I want to push back on what you're saying about this um, in a sense, which is that a few of the big donors can come together and and change the system. And I want to actually... Put it in the context of what you were saying, which is this is not the first reform effort. There was uh, the humanitarian reform agenda, which was launched in two thousand and five. There was then the transformative agenda initiated in two thousand and eleven. Um, there's actually some fantastic Center for Global Development analysis done by your colleague Jeremy Kondik, in which he shows that nothing really changed after these. And one of the arguments from the outside, and I think from particularly a lot of the local NGOs who work in this country, is. The whole problem with the system is that you have these few very powerful people and they're never going to be the source of change like like actually what you need is not this that this is toppled but like you need the outside forces to change it and so when you look at the history of like these two reforms kind of making you know similar ish commitments you see this third one like why do you actively think it's going to come from the top from the inside
2: so you might be right. It might be that that um, we continue to um, it, uh, implore the system to change, to, to agree, communicate, saying that it will change, and nobody does anything. Um, I, I think it will change because this. I mean, it's a very interesting type of problem this. I mean, the humanitarian sector is about $25 billion a year of international aid. It's much more than that if you include what what governments themselves in affected... In, in, yeah, but maybe that's amplified uh, in a perverse way. Uh, well, so exactly. But it's a relatively small amount of international support, a relatively small number of donors. It's you know, 60 or 70 million people, which is a, a, a huge number of people um, that the world is failing by and large, but it's it's a big in, it's a big enough uh, group of people to be really really important, but small enough that we could actually fix it, right? So a lot of the world's problems, you know, we we are trying to solve, you know, problems of gender disparity across the world or low incomes across the world, and these are these are big long term. It's hard to see how we're going to fix those problems. some of the SDGs you know will require huge commitment and effort. This is something that you could actually do. Um, and if I was a you know a, a politician in office for a relatively short period of time uh, uh, in charge of international development, this is exactly the kind of problem I would want to try and tackle because it's big enough to be important but small enough to be actually a manageable set of reforms that could actually change. Now, you could, we could say, well, it's all going to come from the bottom up and, you know, the affected populations and local NGOs are going to change the system, but they can't change the system because the power is where the money is. And it's the money that drives the incentives through the system – and everybody is responding to those incentives and they're not responding and let me say again they're not responding to those incentives in a wicked or evil way they're doing the best they can for the populations they're trying to serve but but if the incentives are to have this this single monopoly system that delivers goods rather than cash um, that uh, doesn't have a variety and and um innovation in it if all they can do is get the money on the old on the old system and it's too risky to try and change that of course that's what they're going to do because they they have people they need to help so the people who can change this are the people who hold the purse strings
0: so this is a transition that's been happening for many decades in other sectors and it ends up requiring structural change and a, a separate purchaser or commissioner that identifies needs and then decides to tender for services from the best possible provider So I buy all that, but I'm struggling actually to connect this back to the very first point we started this conversation with, which was ending refugee camps and the idea that potentially some of these vested interests, these agencies are preserving the status quo. Do you actually think that the way in which we structure funding and and put it down these provider silos creates an incentive to sustain the current Uh, camp-based system in many places?
2: I think that's a great question. So I mean off the top of my head one example of that is if you're providing people with stuff then it's going to be cheaper and easier to do that if all the people are in a camp. If you're providing people with cash either in the form of you know traditional cash dollar bills or in the form of electronic payments cards then it's much easier to do that if those uh, uh, even though those people are dispersed in a population you can you can give them, uh, either through a smartphone or through a digital card or whatever, access to the cash that they need. So, yes, you can imagine that um, if your operating model is stuff uh, and the UN agencies um, are being slow to move to cash because, it, because of their business model, uh, that that makes it harder for the world to move away from refugee camps. So I think there's a connection here. And the bigger connection is that to the extent that we can make the humanitarian system serve not only the needs of affected populations, but the needs of the host communities in which displaced people are living. If you can make that more effective, um, provide stronger, better economic outcomes for everybody, um, less friction, less um, uh, social tension, which um, we know, for example, that giving people cash does, then you will create more appetite for different solutions than Make these people sit and sit behind a fence because I'm not sure what to do with them. You couldn't. You can produce better outcomes. That's go, that's going to make the international system more willing to embrace things like dismantling the camps and absorbing uh, populations into their communities. Um, so this is, uh, I think, also hits on
1: another issue that I think. Uh, is particularly interesting to unpack, which is the debate around the humanitarian development divide. Um, and this may seem heady and wonky, but just to like, make it a little more concrete, I think when, when people think about humanitarian aid, they are thinking about the emergency you know, relief that's provided to somebody to save lives, get them food, get them shelter, make sure that they can survive another day. Whereas development is about much more longer term thinking improve their access to healthcare, improve their access to education, make them less impoverished. And that's kind of a caricatured form of this, but I think that those are the two sides of the camps, largely, right? You're people who are going into Somalia to save lives versus your people who are helping Ghanaians become wealthier. And one of the things that you're talking about is if you take a different frame on this, if oh, the way that humanitarian aid is structured, you may get to, you know, different ways of thinking that can be more optimal. And Bridging the humanitarian development divide is the, one of the ways that people have recently been talking about making that happen. So development practitioners who take the longer term lens of building state capacity, helping provide social services, look at humanitarians and like, you're wasting your money. You're doing the same thing every year for you know on average 12 years for a refugee who's displaced that long. Why don't you take that and invest this in the systems that will help them? So Take us through, how do you think about the humanitarian development divide and uh, what is getting right and what it's getting wrong?
2: So that was a brilliant exposition of, of the problem, I thought. Um, uh, you know, my background is in development more than in humanitarianism. and uh, uh, As I look at the humanitarian system, it's very much as an outsider looking in. Um, uh, it seems to me that uh, the surprising thing to many people is that the vast majority of the humanitarian caseload are people who are long-term displaced in protracted crises, and you know we all assume that a lot of this is you know digging people out of the rubble after an earthquake and providing them with emergency access to tents and water immediately after something terrible has happened. But of course, most of the humanitarian system, most of the budget, most of the activities are people who um, have been uh, affected for many many years. And for those people, we should be thinking about things like education, things like livelihoods, um, uh, uh, things like um, permanent housing rather than temporary shelter. And um, it, it's absolutely understandable that a, that a humanitarian system whose um, first mission is to provide emergency assistance in, a, in the case of a, a rapid onset crisis um, Uh, Is not very good at those other things. And there is, it seems to me, there are two solutions to this. One is that the humanitarian system gets good at thinking about um, institutions, political systems, um, uh, jobs and livelihoods, uh, education, and all those other things. The other way of thinking about it is that we, is that that long term protracted caseload shifts away from the humanitarian system into the development system and is supported by people who do that as their day job and leaves the humanitarian system to focus on what it's good at
0: but what that what that critically requires is the state that is hosting those refugees to care about their welfare and and, and support their development because typically development is highly state centric isn't it let me put a, f- a finer point on that too
1: actually so uh Development practitioners engage with the state, whereas humanitarians, by definition, by principle, by kind of, you know, code, are apolitical and neutral. And so they don't engage with states because that requires politics and political economy. And they provide services to largely refugees who don't have a voice. And so if they were to provide, engage with the state, but the refugees themselves don't have a way to hold that state accountable, like how does this end well?
2: Well, so I, uh, the point you're making, I think, is one of the reasons why I think that um, shifting people out of the humanitarian system into the development system uh, is a better solution than making the humanitarian system respond to these um, long-term needs better, precisely because the, I think the humanitarian system does need to protect the principle of independence and, and of not becoming involved politically. And we can't address people's long-term needs without becoming uh um politically engaged. And so what we need to do is is preserve the space for humanitarians to be neutral and apolitical. Um, and that means that to the extent that that we look we we need solutions that are political, those need to be provided outside the humanitarian system. Um, but what you're saying about um states um uh aren't necessarily concerned about these people, don't feel politically accountable to them. That's true, of course, A lot of, in a lot of development situations too, right? I mean, p- part of the problem of uh, international development is if um, citizens of a country or some proportion of citizens of a country are um, not able to have enough voice over their government to ensure that their needs are met, their rights are protected, their services are provided. And so that's no different from the problem... Of making sure that we move towards gender equality or that marginalised populations are properly supported, that's the bread and butter of development issues. How do you help communities um, for whom the government is not uh, is not providing? Uh, how do you help them to provide? That's what that's what the international development system does, um, or is it part of what the international development system does. Now, if the international part of the problem here again is on the funding side that we um, have been. Um, in many ways, better and more generous at providing funding for the humanitarian system. Uh, and so if you were, if you have an affected population on your books, and uh, you're being funded through the UN system to provide for them, and you know that if they were transferred into the development system, there would be much less resources for them per head to support them in that uh, where they are, you might be... You might be very reluctant to do that, and understandably so, so the international system would need to figure out how to shift the resources across to the development system to to the extent that we shift the caseload across and and many aid critics will say things like we should of course, we should do humanitarian aid, but we should stop with this development aid." Um, which goes to governments and is wasted and so on, and that of course creates an incentive for people to say, well, let's let's do everything in the humanitarian system because that's what aid critics are willing to pay for. So it's quite a you know it's quite a difficult thing to navigate. But it seems to me that if we that we can't expect the humanitarian system to act like development agencies. Partly for the reason that they need to be politically neutral, and partly because it's not—it's not their primary skill set, and it, I think it dilutes the primary skill set, which is rapid onset stuff. So I want to um,
1: actually like push push back on this point, or put, like dive into it a little bit deeper because it's it's unique to refugees um, and individuals across borders. So if you take those individuals, and you take the funding that's allocated to them through humanitarian aid year after year, and you then fund it through state institutions with development aid, official development assistance. Those people, if they don't get it, don't have a voice in that system that's uniquely different from citizens.
2: uh, I mean, the Rohingya in Burma were a neglected population before they were displaced. Indeed, but like, and this varies by state, but in general, there's
1: some a sense that like there's kind of, whether it's parchment or real national structures in which they are able to have voice. Whether in practice it happens or not is dependent. Well, that's, but so, that's, let's, that's a let's rather take a, important but so, but no, no, But, so let's, but let's, take a, let's take an example that is actually uh, more helpful. Syrian refugees coming over to either Turkey or Albania, for that example. Let's say you now start helping the Turkish government. Right, And we have. We've you know, done billion dollar deals with the Turkish government um, in order to handle that caseload. And the Turkish government decides, you know what? Like, great, we got this money, but like refugees like really don't care about them. Like we're not going to like we're not going to send them a cent of this. And you know, a few years ago, you had more competitive elections in Turkey. But like, refugees couldn't but participate let's, let's in those. Be clear,
2: Turkey has done more for Syrian refugees than the entire international community uh, has done for them. I mean, the, uh, let's not paint the these host governments as being... Uh, uncaring or uninterested in in po- now you've got, you've, got cho-
0: you've got a choice here which is one you can try to uh, incentivize should we say governments like Jordan and Turkey to accept not only accept refugees but also provide services to them allow them into their public schools allow them into their public health systems allow them the right to work and that for me feels like the ideal state which is very much a developmental approach the alternative though is to say actually this com- this this state is not prepared to grant them any kind of rights they're basically excluding them and therefore you have to accept that there's going to be a parallel system of humanitarian services to that excluded population and so how do you cope with that different context different um constraints in different places you do need to be able to flex between one that is very state-centric where you're doing deals with states to allow them to have access to services versus a system where you're obviously going to have to create parallel separate services
2: i think that's right and i think you're going to need to navigate it differently in different places but it to the extent that what you are doing is setting up parallel systems i just to go back to the starting point here about refugee camps I don't think that the right conclusion is well. The, the country is not willing to let these people into the state schools, so let's let's ha- let's have them all in a refugee camp. Then we should be looking at what kind of parallel systems are needed, and then we should also be looking at who should be providing them. And the answer is probably not the humanitarian system, but the development actors who, and I think we shouldn't exaggerate the extent to which the development actors are mainly in the business of working with government. So who
0: are the development actors? Are they, just because, I always find the word actors quite...
2: Actors (laughs) means I don't know who I'm I'm referring to, right? Well, so it's a variety of of different donors, bilateral and multilateral donors. It's organizations like the World Bank. Uh, It's um, UN agencies like UNDP. Um, it, it's um, international NGOs and local NGOs and private sector organisations. All of whom. I mean, you could. Mm. You,
0: but yeah. in that vision of reality, the, the the job is just probably to get the the funding to the individual, and then they go and access the services. Who may be provided by for a large actions. number
2: of services. I and mean, there are some there are some contexts and some services where providing money to the individual is not the right answer. I and mean, there are some kind of public good services that can't be done that way. And but also let's not underestimate the extent to which we are trying to do exactly this of working, for example, with Jordan, uh, with Lebanon to support them to integrate uh, displaced populations into their society. And you know we've there. Uh, I think that's the right. Direction for the system to be moving in. Uh, I, I think I'm saying that the, the, probably the wrong bits of the system are doing that, although we're seeing people like the World Bank engaged in that. I would like to see those populations not thought of as part of the humanitarian system, but as part of the development system. And there are probably things we could do better uh, to support those. But this is not, we're, I'm, we're not pointing, this conversation is not pointing in a different direction than the world is going. I think we need to go further and faster in that direction.
0: So that's been a fantastic conversation. You actually uh, used to have a, a podcast called Development Drums. And I remember the, the music very well. It didn't improve my running, I have to say. I, I, it was too interesting for me to actually run to. Uh, final <laughs> I'm just question, imagining maybe, fi- fi- you fi- sitting
1: down and walking while you're supposed to be running, <laughs> listening to a podcast.
0: <laughs> final question. Uh, is it coming back? Can you continue this conversation on it?
2: I'd love to continue this conversation on it. I am I would like to bring it back. I've been meaning to bring it back. It's really a question of finding the time or somebody to sponsor it so that we've got the time and resources to do it. And life is busy, but I really want to bring it back. So if someone has any great ideas for how to uh, how to support it, uh, please get in touch.
0: Owen thank you very much for being on Displaced. Thank
2: Thanks you very much. Thank you.
0: And that was Owen Barter. He had a lot of crazy
1: things to say. We have a lot of crazy things to say. And we'd love to hear what you think about them. Please do get on Twitter and send us a note with hashtag Displaced Podcast. We would love to hear from you on what you think about any of this. And we'd also love you to drop us a note at displaced@rescue.org. Tell us who you'd like to see in the show, the conversations you'd like us to
0: have, or anything that you're thinking and dreaming. And we'd just like to thank all the people at the International Rescue Committee who made this possible, Alex Bandera, Ben Moskowitz, and Catherine Long. And at Vox Media, our production team, associate producer Jelani Carter and senior producer, what's she called again, Grant? Golda Gold, Golder Arthur, Golder? something like that, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Golda uh, Arthur, the the person who does the most work and puts up with us. Thank you, Golda. Thank because you so much. we always remember her name.
0: Um, Nishat Kerwa is executive producer of audio. And this week, a, another special thanks to James McComb at Maple Street Creative Studios in London and to Agrinesh Ashagre.
1: You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Please do subscribe. We would love you to do that. And if you have a chance, rate the app and let us
0: know what you're thinking. Thank you for listening and see you next week.
1: Hey, listeners, I'm Arthur Brooks, host of The Arthur Brooks Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you like this show, I know you'll enjoy listening to my new podcast. In it, I explore the art of disagreement. My guests and I provide some practical advice for navigating disagreements with friends and family, persuading and inspiring others through storytelling, and countering social media's amplifying effect on the culture of outrage. Listen and subscribe to The Arthur Brooks Show on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player of your choice.